The Start On Demand. On demand. A Winnipeg-based peer support group for meth addicts is launching a new initiative to try to discourage would-be thieves from breaking into cars so they can steal stuff to get their next hit. You'll meet the founder of Jib Stop, Jib being street talk for meth. Hal Anderson pays us a visit with a battle of the sexes debate regarding meal prep and grocery shopping. And we want to know who is the villain in your life? Was it an athlete who would always stymie your team? Was it an old teacher, maybe an old classmate, or maybe it's your neighbor? Like Jeff Forte, he's got a situation with his neighbor. I'm Brett McGarry, alongside Greg Mackling and Loren McNabb. We are Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, and this is the Thursday, September 26th podcast for The Start. Okay, so a question for our listeners this morning is where would you rate climate change as an issue this election? A new poll done exclusively for CJOB and Global News found Canadians placed it in their top three, right behind healthcare and cost of living. But as we all know, it's a super supremely divisive issue about climate change and about the carbon tax and all the rest in part because Canadians are so worried about their bottom line. That same poll actually found 64% of Canadians believe they will pay more as a result of the carbon tax, which was put in place to combat climate change. But right now, the tax is actually revenue revenue neutral, meaning most Canadians might make money through rebates rather than lose. Sean Simpson is with Ipsos, who did the poll, and says the results might be because of misinformation. For example, most Canadians do not know that uh, the rate of, of climate change, of, of, of warming, is twice that in Canada than it is in, in other parts of, uh, of the world. Um, they also, um, I think, don't uh, recognize that um, there, are, there are rebates that, uh, that they personally can receive from the carbon taxes uh, and that it actually won't cost uh, many Canadians uh, more money. Throughout this election campaign, we've been looking into the disinformation surrounding many of the key issues, and that's where Global Nationals' Jeff Semple comes in. Good morning, Jeff. Uh, Good morning, guys. Great to be with you. Always good to have you. Uh, Carbon tax. Canadians are kind of all over the map on this one. Some some interesting data. Are we generally not getting how this tax works? Uh, Maybe on the front end we see it at the gas pump, but on the back end and how it ends up flowing back to us in a lot of cases. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of the economists we've interviewed uh, looking into that question has sort of summarized the Trudeau Liberals carbon tax as perhaps the greatest communications failure of the government's term so far. Um, you know, it's interesting you mentioned those those polling results from our friends at Ipsos that found that climate change is ranked number three in its importance during this election campaign, higher than ever on the agenda. Affordability is number two. And of course, Therein lies the tension, right? How best to fight climate change, protect the environment, while also protecting the economy? And if you ask economists that question, as we've been doing over the last little while, it's remarkable. They are almost unanimous that the single best way to protect the economy while also bringing down our carbon emissions is through a carbon pricing system, a.k.a. a carbon tax like the one that the federal liberals introduced in a few provinces, including Manitoba last spring. Uh, Canadians ranking climate change high on their priority list, but also extremely divided over the carbon tax. And as you say, most of them, around two thirds of Canadians, believe that the carbon tax would end up costing them more 
more money when economists say, in fact, it's just the opposite, that the vast majority of Canadians actually stand to make money from the carbon tax. It's supposed to be revenue neutral. That money raised is supposed to go back into the pockets of ordinary Canadians. In Manitoba, for example, the average household actually stands to make just over $100 from the federal carbon tax. But, you know, that message from economists and others clearly not getting through to the Canadian public based on those poll results. Is it the messaging, Jeff, or is it the idea that Canadians just don't want to hear it? You use the word tax and I just decide or many of us just decide that that might be a bad thing. So which which is that fault, the message or just are putting our fingers in our ears and deciding that, <laughs> la, 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 you know, don't want to hear about this. Yeah, well, I think it's the word tax, first and foremost, as you say, Lauren. I mean, you know, we hear the word tax. We assume that it's, you know, the government is raising money to go into different programs to pay a bunch of bureaucrats in Ottawa, whatever. But in this case, this tax is supposed to be, as we say, revenue neutral. All the money's supposed to flow back to, into the majority of Canadians' pockets. So I think, you know, the word tax is a loaded term, of course. And I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think credit where credit is due, that the opponents of the carbon tax have done a, a, a good job of muddying the waters on this and, and really confusing the issue. I mean, we saw an ad out just this week from the federal conservatives, Andrew Scheer, claim, uh, targeting the carbon tax, using numbers that are really quite misleading, um, suggesting that the price of gas uh, at the pumps or your heating bill will raise, at a, will, will increase faster than any of the parties has, has um, proposed thus far. And just claiming ultimately that this carbon tax will cost you more. Um, that's a refrain we've heard from a number of the premiers as well. And I think, you know, their voices have, have proved louder than the Trudeau government on this issue. And I think that's perhaps why there is the, the disconnect that it's, you know, Canadians are, you know, hearing those messages rather than listening to economists thus far on this issue, it would seem. Has that rebate been oversimplified? Because I'm old enough to remember when the GST came in, and, and if you were of a certain income bracket, you got that GST check quarterly, and it sort of softened the blow, and it, it, it ended up being something that you looked forward to, to a great extent, and I know there are still people that get those checks uh, on a quarterly basis. Is this something maybe that's been too well hidden, the fact that you're going to get a rebate on this? It's a, it's a tax deduction versus is money back in your pocket uh, every three or four months. Yeah, it's a good point. And I mean, you know, there have been some people we've heard from, uh, including, the, you know, those accountants who help you do your taxes every year who have, you know, noted that Canadians aren't, aren't a lot of us aren't actually noticing, you know, that the, this rebate exists already. I mean, it's buried in the tax return on line, I think it's on line 449, <laughs> Um, so it, you know, and, and it's not really well labeled. So it's it's buried in there. I, you know, it would be easy to miss. Uh, one, easy to miss the rebate. Two, even if you did claim the rebate, you might not be clear that this is connected to the carbon tax. So, yeah, I think you're right. And the way that it has been kind of buried in bureaucracy, if you like, it's it's been harder to sort of connect those dots. It's worth noting too that this carbon tax just came into effect in April. So. Uh, in, in Manitoba, in Ontario, in Saskatchewan, in New Brunswick, Alberta uh, slated to join that club in the year 2020. But, you know, for the most part, Canadians haven't actually seen that money yet. Uh, what they have seen is the price of gas and the price of heating cr increase already. Isn't, is there not also a problem, though, Jeff, in the information or how this campaign was shared in the sense of, I still don't get it. If, if it's supposed to be about me reducing my carbon tax or my carbon emissions, but I get all this money back, I, I, I don't see how... It makes a difference. So, so many people are saying, well, what's the point then? If I get the money back, what is the point? Yeah, well, that's right. And I mean, the, the that, I guess, according to the economists we interviewed, is sort of the beauty of the system is that uh, it, 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 by its very nature, 
it has built-in flexibility. It incentivizes individuals and businesses to change their lifestyle to try and bring the costs, their own costs down. It doesn't regulate or incentivize. I mean, some of these incentive programs that have been proposed by some of the opposition parties, um, you know, it, it are very similar to a system that was used in Alberta um, that economists say actually, you know, end up sometimes costing taxpayers more because they include government regulation, red tape. They're paying people to do things they might already be, be doing any or look to be doing anyway, whereas the carbon tax is, is really just a flexible incentive that encourages people to find ways to lower their carbon footprint. And I mean, in terms of the success at lowering emissions, as you say, you know, really, it's only about 30, maybe 40 percent of Canadians that will be paying more, probably close, or I should say 20 to 30 Canadian percent of Canadians will end up paying more. Those tend to be wealthier Canadians with bigger homes, larger vehicles. And when you look internationally, um, the success is hard to deny. I mean, you know, in Sweden uh, is home to the most expensive, most uh, oldest climate change. Emissions there have dropped significantly. It's a similar story in the UK. They introduced a carbon tax a few years ago, has almost completely wiped out that country's dependence on coal power, their carbon tax targeting electricity. So if you look internationally, there are examples where carbon pricing has made us a real dent in a country's carbon emissions. Uh, and so, you know, that's why I think economists are, are calling on Canada to follow suit. Global Nationals' Jeff Semple joining us live on 680 CJOB. Jeff, thank you very much for this. Thanks, guys. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, we want to know who is the villain in your life? We were having a conversation yesterday about, it kind of sprung out of a chat about Donald Trump, and then it ended up morphing into who is the athlete that you hated when they would come to town, but you would have loved to have that person on your team. And then we just decided to say, hey, who is the biggest villain in your life? Could be an athlete, could be a former principal, maybe a teacher, maybe an old classmate. I don't know. Your neighbor, Mackling, I asked you because you're a big sportser. So mm -hmm. in sports, who is the villain who you loved to jeer the most? Well, I agreed with one of our listeners yesterday who immediately uh, texted in Wayne Gretzky <laughs> because I, you know, growing up when I did, cheering for the team I did, I detested Wayne Gretzky. And then when you throw into the mix that he very nearly became a Winnipeg Jet before going to Edmonton, it just made things altogether worse. Somebody else said Ken Linsman. But in this modern era, I hate to admit it, but it would be Corey Perry who was so good at getting under the skin of other players. He's dirty as you know what. Mm. But if he played for the Winnipeg Jets, I'd be all over that. <laughs> and his instigation and his uh, way of playing hockey would, would have been a, a decent addition to the Jets once upon a time. I think he's past his prime, but I would say in his prime, Corey Perry. But that sort of thing happens all the time, right? Like we used to hate Weston Dressler. Somebody else the bomber signed him up and was like, ah, I love Weston Dressler. <laughs> and another one of our listeners said, Willie Jefferson. Yeah. Remember last year in the Banjo Bowl when he took that Matt Nichols uh, interception, 100 yards for a touchdown and oh. spent the last 30 dancing and taunting <laughs> the Blue Bomber defense with the ball. Sure. Well, now Willie J is with the Blue Bombers and we love Steeman Willie uh, big time in Winnipeg now. Kevin the Garbage Man says, idiots who park in front of bins I need to pick up are my <laughs> Nemesis. <laughs> yeah, if we're going to go down that road, I'm going to say anyone who doesn't zipper merge, but I know that's not the point here. Get no, off the hey, zipper merge that's, track. that's just it. If that is the villain in your life, that's a oh, great there's idea. There's thousands of them. Just I'm hating on a lot of Winnipeggers this morning then. <laughs> Kelly? <laughs> Uh, I guess if I was going to take one athlete, because I also, uh, you know, I'm very sports oriented, 
Uh, I'd have to say Brad Marchand. Uh, I I love the guy for what a great player he is, but I hate the guy for the idiotic decisions that he makes. You don't like guys that lick faces of the opponents? <laughs> not, <laughs> not really. Oh. No, no. Oh. Or step on sticks to break them during face-offs or uh, snub a, a reporter uh, for a, a post-game availability and act like a complete A-double-S. No, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. no. Ron? Uh, I actually went a different way. My biggest enemy is carbohydrates. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get off bread, and uh, my belly proves it. And I, I just love bread so much, and I just can't stop it. Do you think they have a king, the carbohydrates, the king of the carbohydrates that's out there just coordinating Something, things? and Calling into pizza joints and saying, hey, why don't you just, just put out the crust with an extra spice on it? <laughs> but Jeff, you know Jeff will come buy that for $6 as a side. Yeah, and then I go home and eat half a loaf of French bread. (laughs) I love about Jeff. Every morning he has this giant Tupperware container of vegetables. He's so committed to it. It's the same thing day after day after day. And you're the only one who is allowed to pick food out of that that he doesn't go ballistic over. I usually do it when he's doing the news. Uh oh. Carrots and celery. Oh, she scares that me. Sound, that sounds like a villain villain in the progress right there. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah, that's right. I'll change my answer to Lorraine. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. I'm taking all your carrots today. Jerry. I think I have a villain in the making, and I think oh, that's God. my uh, a neighbor. Yeah, my, my my neighbor below me because you know, like for example, yesterday I go home. And I open up my apartment door, and I can just smell smoke. Oh. I think they're a smoker, and like I've, I've gone downstairs to smell the hallway to see if I can smell smoke. I couldn't smell smoke, so I can't confront them yet. So uh, I think that's my villain in the making. Ooh. Are you worried that they're listeners? He doesn't care. Maybe they're well, listening. Yeah, right well, now. yeah. Well, stop smoking then. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in any apartment in Winnipeg right now, stop smoking. <laughs> I actually, uh, you know what, Forte, I might be on the same path as you. I have a villain in the making with my neighbors upstairs because yesterday at three thirty in the morning, right before I left work, they were still up partying. Their oh, music come was on. blasting. It's in the middle of the week. Yeah, I summer's know. over. I know. I just, I, I, I think I'm gonna have to go. Well, at least knock you didn't sleep door. in. Yeah, that's right. They they helped me wake up on time because they were up all night. It's just ridiculous. We've been talking about this meth crisis for about a year now, Loren, and uh, we've shared the statistics. We know that crime is up. We know that individuals battling this addiction are up, the, the and the crime situation associated with those battling the addiction, those that need money to get their next fix is a, an issue that we're battling as well. But there are people in our community that are doing things at a grassroots level. And part of our responsibility here is to reach out to those people and to visit with them and to find out what it is that they're doing to make a difference. Dane Bourget is the founder of Jib Stop Winnipeg. And yesterday we spoke with him and first asked him, what is Jib Stop? Yeah, so Jibsop is a peer support service. Uh, we provide this service through a telephone, or we actually have in-person meetings starting tomorrow. And uh, that's Fridays, and that's 6 o'clock at 4 Fort. So we're a, a peer support service staffed completely by volunteers who have all recovered from meth addiction ourselves. So you were a meth addict? Yes, I used for about 10 years. So and I've been sober now for over five okay so let me uh, let me put this in or compare or try to make a comparison from my experience to yours i was addicted to 
Cigarettes. I remember the first time I lived in Osborne Village back in 2009. I was trying to quit smoking, but I was having a hardcore Nick fit. I didn't want to go buy a pack because that's the ultimate failure when you're trying to quit is buying a pack of cigarettes. But I needed to have one to the point where I just went for a walk until I bumped into someone who was smoking, offered two bucks for a dart because I just needed one. So breaking addictions can be really hard depending on who you are. What's it like trying to break a meth addiction? So one of the things that makes meth addiction really hard to break is the actual how it affects the chemicals in the brain and like the, the dopamine and the serotonin levels in our brain. So those are the those are the chemicals in the brain that makes us feel joy and stuff. So when you're using it, it lets out an, a, a massive amount of these chemicals and stuff. So you don't feel any joy. You feel nothing but sadness and you, you have no energy and it's 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 a really hard hump to come over there the first few weeks, basically. Uh, and that's what makes so many people relapse so quickly, too. So, Dane, what is it uh, that was your eventual threshold? What was it that convinced you you needed to get help, and how did you go about it? Well, I had a long dry-out period. I was actually incarcerated for um, possession. And that was that gave me a long enough time dry out where I could kind of really think and and use my brain again and realize that that's not that's not any where I want to keep continuing to go. So it, it took it takes a while. Like I say, it was probably almost six months before I could read a book and understand what I was reading and you know have my be in touch with my feelings and my thoughts and just be able to recognize what's real and what's not and what's withdrawal and stuff like that. So I was lucky in the sense that I had a long enough dry time where it was a mandatory dry time, but it it cleared my head enough that I could start working on my sobriety and helping other people. So we've heard from police chief Danny Smythe in the past that we're not going to be able to arrest our way out of this problem. This problem being the the crystal meth crisis uh, that we, we, the city finds itself in. It sounds as though that was part of the answer for you was, was actually being incarcerated. Am I reading too much into this? No, I think that's a major part in it. I thank God every day that, that, that I was lucky enough to have that happen to me. Um, And there, as far as you can't arrest your way out of it, uh, you know, I understand that point and I, uh, you know, and I feel for the police chief and all the police and that are out there and they're stretched to the thinnest right now trying to deal with all of this with an increase in property crime, violent crime, homicides, everything is just, it's skyrocketing. And, um, although you can't arrest your way out of it because it's a supply and demand thing, but those mandatory dry out times can be a lifesaver for some people too. And I think that's going to tie into possibly if they can look at change in legislation for the uh, uh, intoxicated detention persons act too. Cause right now, even if you're high on meth, they can only legally hold you for, and I'm sorry, I don't have the exact number in front of me, but I think it's like 12 hours or 14 hours or something like that. But somebody on meth, they're not even, they're still high after that 12 hours. You know what I mean? So they come and they get arrested or whatever, and they get brought to wherever. I'm not sure if they're even bringing people to the to the detox, or not the detox, the drunk tank. But if they are, then 
they're letting these, these people are out and they're not even high yet. They still haven't even slept. They're still feeling the effects from their last hit or their last high or whatever. Dane Bourget is the founder of Jib Stop, which is a support group for meth addicts in Winnipeg. Mackling, McGarry and McNabb. Greg, at uh, 7.07, we had a conversation with a man named Dane Bourget. Yeah, we've been talking about Jib Stop, and Jane's gonna, uh, Dane's going to tell us what Jib is in this next segment. He's going to talk about the meth crisis and something unique that his group is undertaking to reach out to those in the community who are dealing with meth addiction and turning to crime to fuel it. And we asked him, how long does a hit of meth last? You could use once or twice a day and stay up and be high for days. And uh, like you could literally go for three or four days straight without sleeping, without stopping, barely even eating. And, uh, and it's, it's fairly cheap to do so too. Like it's a, it's a pretty cheap drug. Like I've been far away from it for a while, but last time I heard anything, it was about $60 a gram and you only need like one tenth or, or one fifth of a gram to get high for half a day or a whole day. So it's not really a manageable drug as far as controlling it is because it's so easily accessible and it's so cheap and it and the effects last for so long. So is that why we're seeing this increase in property crime? If you score a few bucks, you can get a hit. Yeah, exactly. And you know, and I feel for the people in some of these other neighborhoods that are hit real hard, like River Heights. That's uh, like they're. And I, again, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I know a couple of people that live, live in River Heights. And in a matter of six months, it's normal if they get their cars, car window smashed twice. You know what I mean? And that's, uh, that's absurd to me. So something that we've doing, we've got these place cards we've ordered. They should be in next week. And it's just a little, uh, I don't know if I want to say advertisement, but just a little notification thing that people can put in their window or that they could hang somewhere we can put them up Uh, hopefully we can get some more cooperation with the mayor and put them up around the city but it's just a little thing to mention about jib stop what there is and our phone number where if you are affected by meth you could maybe hopefully reach out and we can be there in the in the moment of need so that's one of the biggest things with addiction and people who are wanting to quit like for one nobody when they were a little kid they nobody ever said i want to grow up to be a junkie that was never anybody's plan. You know what I mean? So we need to help these people to try to get to the life that they want to live. And quite often there's such a long wait time to get into treatment or to, to seek help or, or whatever it is. There needs to be someone there at initial point of contact who can say, hey, I, I understand what you've been through. I've been through that too. And then we can hopefully hi- help guide these people and keep them occupied enough until they do get into a treatment center where they can get the professional help that they need. Do you think that the sticker, that the place card, will actually prevent some would-be thieves from smashing a window? Um, it's hard to say. Like, I know, I, I just try to think of what somebody's thought process would be. If they take a second to, to read it, and it has it, because it has our symbol, our logo on it, which is a red stop sign, and it says Jib Stop on it, and anyone who uses meth will know that jib is a slang for methamphetamine then maybe they might kind of like hmm just kind of think about it for a second and hopefully that second is long enough for them to like keep moving or whatever and i guess even more hopefully than that what would be ideal is if they actually see it and they phone us 
and we can start helping them help themselves. Dane, tell us more about what's happening starting tomorrow night and how people can reach out, get in touch with you and take advantage of your peer-to-peer support system. Yeah, so tomorrow we have a meeting starting at 4-4, and that's at the Mood Disorder Association of Manitoba. They were uh, nice enough to uh, have a, a community partnership with us to allow us to have a meeting at their space. And um, so that's at 6 p.m. at 4-4 every Friday. We're going to have a peer support meeting where it's just people are going to come together and we're going to talk about what's going on, some struggles and some resources and stuff that are, that are there to help the people in need. If my friend, my brother, my sister, my niece, my nephew is in this boat, can I come along? Can I encourage them to come and maybe even give them a yeah. ride down there? Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Like if, if a family member is bringing a fellow addict, then for sure. Um, we're going to have to just see how the response is from the community. Cause what we try to do is we try to deliver a service for what's needed. So it's kind of up to the community to see what, what's their, what's really needed, you know? And so if I, if we notice that we get 10 or 15 or 20 people from for family members, maybe we'll even start breaking off into two groups and, We'll have two meetings, one for families and one for addicts, and we'll just we're just really kind of play it by ear and see what's gonna what's gonna be the most impactful. Like we don't have a set schedule of this is exactly what we want to do because we want to be flexible and we want to have the greatest impact that we can. Dane Bourget, thank you for doing what you're doing. What's the phone number? Yeah, so they can reach us. They can call, text, or Facebook. Our phone number is two zero four nine zero four stop. Dane Bourget, founder of JibStop, a peer support group for meth addicts in Winnipeg, trying to take steps to convince would-be thieves not to smash the window. In a moment, we're talking about gun crimes, but just quickly continuing the conversation on villains at 204-780-6868. We were asking you the question, who is the villain in your life? Doesn't matter if it comes from sports, from your real life, maybe an old teacher. One text here from a listener, Dave, says, and Greg, I think you can certainly uh, relate to this one, the entire Euler team (laughs) of the 80s. Yes. I did not like anyone. On the team. I don't yeah. want to sound like a mom here, but that's I'm the opposite. Because of the, the hatred of the Oilers and the Gretz, and Gretzky, Stop. every time we used to play them, people would boo. And and I to this day, I'm like, please everybody stop booing. That's that's someone's kid out there, man. Someone's kid? It's somebody's kid skating oh, along. Please. Uh, my, don't, don't boo. My father-in-law used to tell my wife, you just boo him because you're jealous. And I think there was some of that. And I'm embarrassed to admit that uh, I got a Wayne Gretzky doll for Christmas one year from my grandparents, they thought it would be very funny, and, and it was hilarious. <laughs> uh, but I also uh, hung that doll in effigy and uh, swung it from it. the <laughs> upper deck of the Winnipeg <laughs> Arena for uh, a couple of playoff series once upon a time. I, I would never do that again, but at the time, it, it felt right. You can keep those texts coming in at 204-780-6868. We also invite you to join the conversation on Instagram. We put the question up on our story, and we also put a post on our 680CJOB Facebook page. All right, Winnipeg police have been telling us for months now that gun crime is on the rise. 
But we now have some new numbers to show just how bad it is. You have been hearing some of that information in the news run with Jeff Braun, but we're going to dig more into the numbers now and where we might be seeing that spike in gun use or why. CJOB's Diana Foxall has been looking into the data, and and we're going to talk to Inspector uh, Max Waddell after 10 and Jeff Courier show to talk about the context behind these numbers. But the numbers alone, Diana, are pretty startling. Let's just start with how we compare to the rest of the country. Absolutely. So police are seeing increasing numbers of firearms popping up across the country. So the rate of gun-related crime in Canada is at 42% since 2013. Here in Winnipeg, gun crimes have gone up 66% since 2014. So an even faster rise there. That's 20% higher than the national average. Yeah. To put that in perspective, that's going from 192 incidents where guns were involved in 2014 to 319 last year. So breaking down those crimes, there's a pretty clear majority. Most of the crimes where guns are used are robberies, 75%. So that is the vast, vast majority. Another 21% are shootings. And again, that's pretty clear cut. Uh, Now, we don't know what the other 4% of those incidents where guns are involved Uh, kind of break down to, but that's something we're going to be asking police. So it's pretty obvious guns are very often used in robberies and, of course, shootings where you have to have a gun. So it's not just the idea of these guns being used for crime. It's their prevalence. It's their accessibility. It's the fact that they seem to be almost everywhere. Yeah, and that's something that um, we're hearing more about. There were certainly a couple of shooting incidents over the weekend Uh, this past weekend in various parts of the city. And I think one thing that I was perhaps a little surprised by is when I spoke to people sort of near one of the areas of the shooting, kind of Pemina by Jubilee, uh, where there was one incident early Saturday morning, people said they weren't surprised. People said it would be really hard to surprise me by saying a shooting happened anywhere in the city. Like, it sounds like people are kind of keeping up and they're aware of the prevalence of guns in the city. So, for it to happen anywhere nice neighborhood or sort of not nice neighborhood as you'd sort of think of it in the past they're not they're not shocked since between 2016 and 2019 over 6500 guns have been seized one way or another in Winnipeg absolutely um when it comes to gun seizure Seizures last year, cops nabbed uh, 1,772 guns. So that's an increase of more than 500 on 2017. So that's a big jump. Uh, That increase was largely due to the number of guns coming in sort of for destruction to be disposed of. I don't know why that is. I don't know if that's sort of more public messaging that, hey, turn in your guns. Through the gun amnesty program. Exactly. I think that may be it. We're going to confirm that with Inspector Waddell. Um, Now, the number of guns seized by crime did really sort of spike in 2017. So back in 2016, there were 475 guns seized by crime. The next year, there were 724. So that's a big jump, and we've kind of kept rolling since then. So last year, 778, and this year we're currently sitting at 512 and expecting to kind of meet or exceed that number from last year. So it's a very strong trend that the number of guns seized by crime has really picked up over the past three years. No, that's a lot of numbers for people to digest. But the bottom line is that they're seizing more guns. We're seeing guns used in more crime with a large percentage of those being robberies. And I think for me, when you say 319 uh, gun incidents last year, that's almost one a day. And if you look at the ones over the weekend, so you had one used in a carjacking near Grace Hospital, Portage mm-hmm. Avenue, total total different area of the city. Waterfront Drive, I think, was one. And then the other one was Pemina and Jubilee. So your point about it being in various locations. So now it used to be 20 years ago, I think people would say when you heard about crime, knives were such a big part of the equation. And so you would, I, I don't know if 
this makes it fair, but you had less fear of that. But a gun now being used and fired, sometimes we don't know why they've been fired. We just know that shots were heard and or they find bullets, Diana, say in a parked car or another part of a location. Exactly. And yeah, as you mentioned, it's not always sort of a victim turning up to hospital or lying on the ground with bullet wounds. It's just damage that you've seen people reporting hearing gunshots. There's not always a victim right there. Um, So we are hearing more of that. Um, Certainly the Pemina Hotel on the weekend, that was the case. No one was injured. They don't have a suspect. They don't have a victim. But guns are just being used more and more often. And it sounds like, I know we heard earlier this year, the trend of improvised weapons being a big thing. It sounds like that is kind of continuing. I know Inspector Waddell says that's certainly one of the trends police are continuing to follow up on. Um, When I talked to people earlier this week about sort of shootings and whatnot, they were just surprised, like, where are these weapons coming from? They're illegal, that sort of thing. But it sounds like, uh, as police have certainly mentioned in the past, this is something that people are kind of making themselves. It's not always something that you would buy illegally. It's a weapon that's being sort of made at home. Improvised weapons and and just the, the police actually break down how these guns are used in terms of the shootings. And in 2015, it was five in drug-related incidents. In 2019, it's it, so far it's four. The big rise has been in what they categorize as unknown. In 2015, those unknown gu- gun incidents and, and situations where firearms were used 11 incidents so far in 2019, 44 incidents. So just a, a just a multiplier effect here. Yeah, absolutely. And they also classify some as unsolved, but it sounds like that's something that we would find out at the end of the year once they've kind of tallied up all the reasons. Who is this guy is not a question that needs to be asked when Hal Anderson steps into the room. Good morning, Hal. Hello, gang. How are you? Doing well, sir. So three gal, uh, three guys, one gal here. Mm-hmm. and uh, I the... still do 80% of the work. Okay, good, because Lorraine knows what I'm going to talk about here. This That's why. <laughs> this wow, is uh, on, on, the show, on the show or at home? I'm just throwing out 80%. Okay. I know where All you're right. going with this. Uh, wow. When it comes to, this is sort of interesting, uh, Pew Research Center says when it comes to meal preparation and and grocery shopping, it's getting better, but women still do about 80% of it compared that, to 20% for men. That better? Well, it's but it used to be a lot worse. Oh, my now, word. Now, are we just talking specifically about meal preparation? Or that talking? number is grocery shopping, meal preparation, yes. Okay. Uh, because in my situation, I did, the only thing that my ex would do was the meal prep, and I did everything else. Right. Uh, and there are shopping, exceptions. Chores. For sure there are exceptions. But would you not agree that that's probably yeah. the way it is in most cases, As right? somebody who spent about seven hours yesterday making meatballs and spaghettis, <laughs> sauces, okay, I got and another... lasagna, and chili. But my husband does a ton of the shopping, and if he's there, he, yeah. he helps for sure. I just think the, that sometimes the initiative starts in different brains. Okay, I've got another stat for you. When you talk to men and women, men are more likely to say, yeah, it's pretty even. Right. No surprise there. And listen to this. Moms spend an average of 68 minutes per day on meal preparation compared to 23 minutes for fathers. 
Okay. Yeah. So moms are much busier making the meals for the kids yeah. and the family than dads. That might just be what's being made, though, I think. Like, in terms of... Well, that's a good point. Because, I never thought about that. Because I will... We're having know, spaghetti again. Right. Or, like, I remember when we first had kids, I'd come home and... Just because your kid wouldn't eat, right? And yeah. so I'd walk in and my oldest would be one at the high chair and there'd be, like, a soda cracker <laughs> and, like, some cut-up tomatoes. Yeah, right. Because he wouldn't eat any of the stuff that had been made. Yeah. And then my husband's like, well, it's a vegetable and it's, it's a <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I don't know what more you want from sure. me. And so, you know, I think there is an argument that, yeah. like, I think a guy would be happy with a steak and a and a potato, but right. like not the salad or the beans or the corn, like, yeah. generalizing no, that's here. A good point. But, and I yeah. think that, that is a good point because things do get ramped up a little bit if I do the cooking. I do a lot of the cooking in mm-hmm. my house just because of the schedule. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, And we're unusual with regard to our schedule. But yes, the barbecue steak does go up a couple notches. Yeah. If Jackie gets home by the time we are in that preparation mm-hmm. phase, for sure, there's more salad. The bell peppers get cut up just so. Right. Versus if I'm doing it, it's like, here's steak and pasta. There's peppers in the fridge, but I don't really feel like cutting them. I wonder right if now. dad's meal, though, is more popular with it, the kids. It might be because I, you know, if you add mushrooms and onions and all these things that you think are amazing, then you know, inevitably, like, did the onions touch you? My steak. And it's like, <laughs> oh, God. Like, like who cares? Yeah, right. Eat it. So I might be just wasting, spinning my yeah. wheels. Yeah. 80 20. I'm surprised it's not closer than to 50. I, I know it's not anywhere near 50 50, but I was still surprised at 80 20. Now, I think housework must be different. Yeah. Like, that's I, I think I'm... that's. Where you're coming from, Brett. Yeah, and and, it, and as I think about it, in my last two relationships, I'm starting to think maybe I'm the problem because in my last two relationships, I did all the housework uh-huh. except for the meal prep. Right. And I think it was just because, I think it was a situation where, well, he's going to do it anyway, so mm-hmm. just let him do yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah. I, I wonder if there is still that line out there of what is perceived to be male and female roles, like in terms of even just mowing the lawn, like who mows the lawn in your mm-hmm. house more often yeah. or who's who's in the garage more often versus who's in the kitchen. And I don't know where that starts or how you fix that I besides just saying, I'm going to go mow the yeah. lawn. Yeah. It'd be interesting to compare a millennial couple, you know, a couple in their 20s and what they do, the tasks they do compared to, say, 50 or 55-year-old like us, Greg. Yeah, well, think about how it's changed about even how you eat. We've had the stories about how kitchens are less a big deal in these new condos and Mm -hmm. apartments, uh, apartment-sized fridges. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't even have a stove. You might have a a stove top but no oven, a microwave oven. We know the prevalence of eating out and ordering in has has grown dramatically over the last decade or more. And so, yeah, there might be fewer work-oriented, or pardon me, food mm. and shop, grocery shopping-oriented chores to divide up yeah. because food, you know, let's face it, for a long time, mm-hmm. the kitchen was the heart of the home right. and everything kind of centered around what was going on in the kitchen. Our lifestyles are changing dramatically away from that. So this number could change as well. Uh, and I like the the perception part right. of it as well, right? It's Guys like, are like, yeah, it's pretty even. Yeah. I, <laughs> I, I don't use my cell phone when I'm driving, but everybody else sure. does, right? right? It always yeah. bears out in those surveys. Right. We just had a listener text in saying, if you look at the difference between women and men as far as clothes, translate that to cooking. Women demand more variety and create more work than men. Let's see where this comment goes. Ah. LOL. <laughs> Interesting, oh Mark. But there, I, I, I did make the point. I, mm-hmm. You're always trying to create the best possible yeah. meal, and you might just be thinking of more things than 
your yeah. counterpart would. What's the right. deal in your house? Are you going to save that for your show? Tell us who's doing the highest percentage of uh, meal prep and Jackie cooking? Jackie definitely does. No question about it. But I think everybody's situation is different, right? Like Greg said, you know, because you guys get up in the middle of the night. You don't even get up early in the morning. You get up in the middle of the night. So you're home earlier, sure. right, Greg? So yep. maybe you start dinner, right? I mean, it just sort of depends on every couple. But um, My husband did more cooking when I was in TV because I was home right. late, right? That's for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and yeah there, I'm going to talk more about that today, and I think we're all going to talk oh, more about geez. that. And there is something to be said, too, for the extra time that the women put into it, because the presentation, like when the ex would, would make food, right. it, it was like it came out of a restaurant. Yeah. Well, it had to go on Instagram, right? Well, I guess so, I suppose. <laughs> but still, it, it, the presentation adds to the experience, whereas I would, I don't care. If I'm making something, I don't care. Just you, feed it to me. On yeah. that point... There should be a ton of fantastic cooking going on in, in younger generations' home because of the need to share it on social media. If you want to show it off, it's got to look good. Oh, no, let somebody they else order do it, it in. They make it. They, they buy it made already, and they take the picture and look at what I'm having. No I, shame in that. I love this text message. It's for you, Hal. Really, Hal? You ask what the millennials do? They get their mom or dad to come over and do it because <laughs> neither of them know what to do. Sorry, not a shot at young people. Yeah, it yeah, is. It is, sure. It's just a fact based <laughs> on observation. Well, and there's probably some truth to that, sure. Yeah. Well, we had a 39 year old say that he does 90 percent of the cooking, and because I'm in near that age bracket, I'm gonna ten. We're both of the younger generation doing yes. the right thing. Right. You're a millennial, <laughs> aren't you, Lauren? Yes. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. No, absolutely. Thank yeah. You. Thank yeah. you. Right. Hal Anderson afternoons one to four. Stray. Don't forget. By the way, uh, Lauren, dope kicks. <laughs> dope kicks you got on today. Oh my. Don't forget about Hal at Psych. high noon. Psych. Hal at high noon. Are Facebook the kids still live. Saying that? I'm trying to promote Hal's at high noon. Would you guys just shout out? Come on, for we're five trying seconds? to get the double digits on Facebook Live, please. Hal at high noon. So we've heard from police chief Danny Smythe in the past that we're not going to be able to arrest our way out of this problem. This problem being the the crystal meth crisis uh, that we we the city finds itself in. It sounds as though. That was part of the answer for you was, was actually being incarcerated. Am I reading too much into this? No, I think that's a major part in it. I thank God every day that, that, that I was lucky enough to have that happen to me. Um, and there, as far as you can't arrest your way out of it, uh, you know, I understand that point and I, uh, you know, and, and I feel for the police chief and all the police and that are out there and they're stretched to the thinnest right now trying to deal with all of this with an increase in property crime, violent crime, homicides, everything is just, it's skyrocketing. And, um, although you can't arrest your way out of it because it's a supply and demand thing, but those mandatory dry out times can be a lifesaver for some people too. And that's controversial for a lot of people. The idea of whether this is a health emergency, whether this is a crime emergency, a combination of both. I'm on the, I think I'm in the both camp. I, I was, I was uh, fairly solidly in the health emergency side for a, a, a short period of time. But when you realize that it's different, an addiction to alcohol, as an example, or the effect of alcohol on the body is significantly shorter, dramatically shorter in terms of when you get intoxicated versus getting high on meth. And I don't know, train spotting, has everybody seen train spotting? And, uh, you know, when that movie came out, a lot of people 
suggested it glorified heroin use. There was nothing glorifying about using heroin in that movie. It showed what hell it was to get off it, in my mind, and, and where people went when they were on it. And so the idea of a detox center, something where where people need to be off the street and away from access to drugs uh, for an extended period of time is something I'm I'm becoming solidly behind. And that doesn't have to mean, sorry, what would that look like would be my question. It doesn't have to mean that they're arrested because of a crime and no. then are and suddenly just find themselves right in prison. No. It's about if it's if you're arrested and you're deemed to be high on meth, do you automatically go into that place that or would some, force? Or someplace I can knock on the door and say, hey, I need to get away from this. I, and the only answer is for me to get away from the people I know that are using to have any access to it is is mandatory. I got to get away from it. Um, yes, a secure location where you can feel comfortable that, that drugs are not coming into that site for an extended amount of time. We had a text earlier this morning, in case you missed it, it was from an ex-corrections officer who says, I totally agree with your guest comments on the meth crisis. I have seen the change in an inmate who spends more than six months in jail. It is a complete day and night. Our jails are full, but a secure facility to help these addicts could, in my opinion, go a long way to maybe try to ease this situation. And then on the subject of train spotting, glorifying heroin, Greg, we got a text from Arthur who says, I would point an accusing finger at the producers of the television series Breaking Bad for popularizing the availability and use of meth. Too little attention has been given to the responsibility the purveyors of popular culture owe to the consumers of their messages. And once again, for anybody who has seen Breaking Bad, there is nothing that glorifies the use of meth in there. It's about two guys who get into it to make money, and we watch as their lives completely fall apart. But it doesn't actually show... Oh, no, it does have a couple drug den scenes. I'm trying to think, does it actually show people high and doing terrible things? Like, they're they're doing terrible things because they're making it. Yeah. But does it actually show the impact on the user? Uh, there are a couple. I think one. I think Jesse's girlfriend, in fact, uh, was hooked on it. Yeah. Uh, so the the people who are using the product in the show, they're not portrayed in a healthy, positive way. It's a big question for our community. We're hearing this morning uh, re- reports and reaching out to the Aurora Recovery Center now about how they have had to lay off some staff due to the fact that they don't have enough people using their facility. Because there's a cost attached, right? And so if it, if it doesn't, if it's not covered by private insurance, then you'll find yourself on a wait list for a recovery or addictions treatment facility. And so it's this catch-22 because does the government, does the tax dollars pay for that, your private insurance? And if they don't, well, then you're lost. And you're in a situation where you can't pay the twenty, thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars or whatever it might cost to rid yourself of that addiction unless you end up in jail like our friend did. Yeah, the, the access to treatment, the access to help is absolutely critical. I've said this a dozen times uh, or more on the air and hundreds of times privately when it comes to help with mental health issues. You never know when that day of reckoning, that day of awareness comes for someone afflicted. It doesn't matter what it is, addiction, mental illness, a combination thereof. And you say, today's the day I need to get help. And if you pick up that phone or you knock on the door to that clinic or that place where you anticipate your can get help, they're not open or answering the phone, that might be the last and only chance that we get to help those people. Mackling, McGarry, and McNabb, all week long we have been talking to 
wonderful authors who are here for Thin Air, the Winnipeg International Writers Festival. And we have another one in studio with us here, and I'm just opening the front flap, and it says, from the number one nationally best-selling author of By Gaslight, a novel of exquisite emotional force about love and art in the life of one of the great writers. The great writer we have in studio is named Stephen Price. He hails from Victoria, and the name of the latest book, Lampedusa, a novel. Stephen, welcome. Thank you. Good morning. I have to start with the title, Lampedusa. <laughs> I, I wasn't even sure how to pronounce that when we first got it in the mail. So take us back. What is Lampedusa? What's it mean? Or who is it? Or where is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, the the title was something that, that we talked about a lot. Uh, myself and, and my Canadian editor and my American editor and my UK editor, because we couldn't find one that we, we all three agreed on. And I think I made the mistake of asking for their input. And so we ended up with Lampedusa, which is the title, uh, the name of, of the main character, who's um, the, uh, a real-life author. Uh, he was the last prince of Lampedusa. I think a lot of people might know Lampedusa as the island where the migrants are. are uh, so much in the news is centered around this island. Um, and he was the, his family, was, they were the, the titled holders of that island up until the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And they kept that title uh, up until the 1950s, which is when he died. So you're talking about Sicily here. Yes, Sicily. <laughs> and, and so the artwork on the front of this book is spectacular. I just uh, was fortunate enough to spend some time in Croatia earlier this year. So I'm familiar with a little bit of what might be pictured here, but, but what is it exactly, Stephen? Uh, so the, the, the cover photograph is by an Australian photographer named Seth Fain, uh, and he did a series of, of photographs. Um, it's actually northern Italy. Uh, where he was, um, and he would stand at the bottom of the interior courtyard of a building and, and look up and take a photograph, and right at the center of each photograph is open sky, um, which was filled with the, the title of the book in this case. It's absolutely spectacular. It is. It's dizzying. It's beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so does that, does that uh, terminology uh, go hand in hand with the book? Is, is it dizzying? Oh, jeez. I don't know. You'd have to ask the readers. I, it was dizzying to write. <laughs> well, how do you get into this? Like, because this is uh, a subject. Like, you're not. Do you have any ties to Italy, for example? Like, any family ties? No, no. This is um, there's so, there's no family connection. So, what drove your interest in this subject? Well, the 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 book. So, the real person, Lampedusa. He at the end of his life, he sat down. Um, you know, a lot of people say, "When I retire, I'd like to write a book." And often um, that's met with a polite smile. Well, he really did that in the last two years of his life, having um, always read and dreamed of writing a book. He sat down to write one. Uh, and the book he wrote was The Leopard, um, which was turned into a movie in 1962. Uh, and it's still in print. Well, I read it in my early 20s, that book, and I was moved very much by it. Uh, I came back to it every few years. And each time I would read it, I'd find something new in it. Um, and so... A few years ago, I read a biography about Lampedusa, and I could kind of see how the last two years of his life resembled very much the structure of the strange structure of this novel he'd written. And when I saw that, I could kind of see a, a novel forming, and that was this book. Is there any connection to the fact it's about a person who struggled to finish his book, and you and you relate to that, and and then find the layers in that to tell the story as well? Because we're always, you know, continually writing the chapters of our lives as well. 
it's it's filled with the pain and torture of writing of a writer writing a book um so that's in there um but the you know it, it's uh, of course it's a novel about a real person mm-hmm. yeah so all the facts are are true but the character that i that i've built out of lampedusa who i like to think is authentic and still in some ways spiritually um, um, true and accurate to the man. It's still very much a fictional creation. Now, you're the author of two novels. One is By Gaslight in 2016. That was long listed for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, as well as one from 2011 called Into That Darkness. But you're also an acclaimed poet. You've written two award-winning poetry books, 2006's Anatomy of Keys, which is the winner of the Gerald Lampert Award, and Omens in the Year of the Ox, winner of the Relit Award. Uh, so... I confess, when I took English in university, when poetry came along, I sucked at it. <laughs> I am just not, uh, I don't know if it's it, smart enough is the, word, the, the appropriate term to use, but I just didn't get it. Um, but I, the one takeaway I got was that poets would tended to write, they would, they, there was always a theme that kind of drove what would inspire them. So is there something in particular that would kind of inspire you to put pen to paper? Well, you know, uh, theme, <laughs> English class. Po- poetry isn't, doesn't need to be scary. Uh, and I, I, I felt very much the same thing that you're describing, um, especially going through high school, where I had the most wonderful, well-meaning teachers in the world, but they would take a poem and they would kind of try to decode it. Uh, and then when I when I hit university and I enrolled in a writing class, I had the most wonderful teacher. Uh, the poet Patrick Lane was was teaching this first year poetry class, and the poetry that he was showing us much more contemporary, and the poems made sense. They weren't confusing if you just sat back and you just you just read them and 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 or listened to them. And you know they're always about something more than themselves. That's part of what makes a poem a poem. But they don't have to be frightening and intimidating and they're not necessarily a secret code. Have you, you, you mentioned the creative writing class in university. So then are you a person who your whole life wanted to do what you're doing and write a book and that's been from birth or, or you're like some of the rest of us who said, I'm going to write a book someday. And then you know, <laughs> we don't actually do it. Right. Well, I was, I was both. I was, I was, um, I was a solitary boy, uh, growing up before the internet, uh, in a world that, um, there weren't a lot of readers and there weren't a lot of strange, isolated, weird kids like me. Um, so what I do you mean found, by that? Sorry, just you said solitary and isolated. <laughs> is it someplace where you were living or just more of who you were as a personality? Well, I was living in Colwood, um, which is a, was a, a little bit of a rougher place at the time. It's it's more refined now, perhaps. That's a part of Victoria? It's a part of Victoria. It's just outside Victoria. It's sort of the wrong side of the tracks of Victoria. Yeah, I don't know if anyone from Colwood is listening to this right now, but... <laughs> But uh, oh, they, may come, they, they, are. they may come and rough me up at the reading. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, uh, and and there just it just wasn't a particularly um, um, bookish sort of world. And uh, I, I found refuge in books. Uh, my, my parents were big readers. Um, and I'm sure that's part of what encouraged me to, to, to go there. And I always dreamed about writing a book. And this was, I would be 12 years old, 13 years old at the time. There's a, a wonderful writer named Gordon Corman who writes for children. Um, and he wrote his first book when he was 14. And hearing that story, I was like, oh, I can do this. So I always wanted to write a book. And then, you know, your teenage years hit and, and um, you kind of drift away from that. But that's still sort of there. And then I came back to university and I thought, you know, this is really, this is who I really am. This is what I want to do. So when your first book just shows up in a box at the house, are you like drinking that in? Like I even, I love the smell of a new book, let alone if it was my own book. I would probably throw it on the ground and sleep on it with like a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, that's that's some of the best nine minutes of your life is opening those books. And then after about nine minutes, it's like, uh, there's other things to do. <laughs> I got to keep going, right? I got something Sorry. else to do. When I was in Europe and, and looking at this uh, cover for Lampedusa, this whole idea of starting a piece of art or being a part of something that might take decades or even centuries to complete. That, that, that's got to be that, that's got to be an overwhelming thought for someone like you who sees something come to fruition from start to finish. Can you, can you put yourself in the place of these artisans who, who knew that they would potentially never live to, to see what, what they had started? Well, I, I, you mean like the, the people who are working on the great cathedrals? Yeah. Or, the, it's mind-blowing, isn't right? it? Right, and then some of the artists, you know, their eyes were taken away after they were completed so that they could never replicate what they've done. Some of the stories, artists haven't always been, been treated uh, very well, including poets and writers uh, over history. It's true, uh, it, and, and when you speak, I start to think it feels like a noble profession. Uh, and then I go home and, and I, you know, I'm walking around in my pajamas all day. It doesn't feel quite so noble. <laughs> we don't need to tell people that. Don't, don't, don't destroy the mystique of, of the nobility of it all because uh, you're putting into words uh, things that so many of us think and feel but just don't have the eloquence to, to craft them the same way you do. And, and so and that's a pretty incredible gift. Well, you know, the part of the thing, one of the things that I, I, I find so moving about this particular novel, Lampedusa, and the story of Lampedusa is that he spent the last two years of his life writing this book uh, that became The Leopard, and then he sent it out to get it published, and it was rejected. And then he, he grew more ill, and he sent it out to be published again, and he received a second rejection, and he died 10 days after the second rejection. And he died thinking the novel would never be published, that it was a complete failure. And then a year later, it's published because his, his, his wife, his widow, uh, continues to, to try to get it published. It's celebrated. It wins the Strega Prize. That's love, it's, right? That's dedication, <laughs> too. Well, they had an amazing relationship. She was a formidable woman. So did you, you said you had no connections to Italy or Sicily, but you must have, did you, you must have been there since and done a lot of research in country. I did. Um, and ate a lot of great food as an aside. <laughs> research. That was all research. <laughs> Yes, um, I did. I, in fact, I, I went to Sicily and I had the opportunity to meet Lampedusa's adopted son, Giochino, wow. uh, who's now 85. Um, and he's actually um, a major character in this novel. So I had a lot of uh, nervousness um, going to meet him, but he was lovely and, and elegant and generous. And he took me on a tour of this palazzo that Lampedusa had lived in at the end of his life that set, that where the, the novel, so much of the novel set. And, um, and he, in essence, he gave me his blessing for the book, which was which was really lovely. Oh, wow, that's stressful yeah. writing about someone you've met, though. It, you know, <laughs> because they're they're still there to call you up and be like, "Sorry, page seventy two, four hundred and fifty seven, or missing three words, or something." You know, Stephen Price is part of the Winnipeg International Writers Festival, Thin Air. Winnipeg.ca for more information, but we can tell you that he's going to be in the nooner today at the Millennium Library, uh, starting at twelve fifteen, and then tonight. At 7.30 at the Manitoba Theatre for Young People, the main stage and the event called Making Do, Getting By. Stephen Price, pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much for stopping by to visit us today. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to The Start Podcast. We are available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Subscribe now and never miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate the show, tell us what you think. 
And hey, even tell a friend about the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Greg is at GMACWPG. That's G-M-A-C-K-W-P-G. I am at Brett McGarry, B-R-E-T-T-M-E-G-A-R-R-Y. And Loren on Twitter is at McNab on Global and on Instagram at McNab on CJOB. Talk soon.